Hello friend. The Mystical American Patriot Society is transmitting to you from our secret ice fortress and laboratory high in the Swiss Alps. This is a variety program for normal sandwich eating Americans with some concerns about living in a deranged, post-Christian technocracy. Keep your third eye on the sky and your ear to the ground as Sumo and Smokestack direct your attention to a higher dimension. Are you ready? Stand by. with Steve Skojic? No. Uh, Steve S-K-O-J-E-C? I have no idea who that is. Uh, good. Good. He's, uh, he's, um, I guess he's an internet semi-famous person among semi-circles. Okay. What's he do? What's his shtick? quote-unquote trads. Okay. Trads. He wrote, uh... He started the publication One Peter Five. Are you familiar with this publication? No, is he a tradcath militant tradcath guy? Oh yeah, he was like the most militant tradcathy person. He sort of started the online movement of that. Okay. Um, I'm a Protestant, so that's why <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, that's fine. Uh, he's a, he's an interesting character because he would be like, you know, he was all like monarchy and stuff. Yeah. And, and recently he's, uh. Recently, he's entered his phase of being like, hey, maybe, maybe Catholicism isn't true. And so it's been interesting to watch him, or, or Christianity in general, or it's been interesting to watch him sort of fall apart, uh-huh. as people do. And you need to go through this phase. This is a phase everyone needs to have. It's You need to have it preferably when you're like 15 to 23 instead of mid-40s like he's doing. Yeah. But... Whatever, I'm not going to cast aspersions, you know. Um, but uh, he, he, um, he was probably the, the, the he was the, the one that started and is probably the, the uh, one people fighter, which is like the largest trad thing, like I said. Um, and he was waffling about his faith for a while mm-hmm. until a, a priest wouldn't baptize his baby, his new baby, because he thought Steve wouldn't raise him Catholic enough because he was trad. Ooh. And that sort of sent him over the edge. And liberals love to do that, and I love it when they do that too. Like, just inject that into my veins. Because they're like, <laughs> they, like liberal liberals in general, and like liberals in hierarchies especially, mm-hmm. like, they don't believe in hierarchies or that they matter. Right. But then they know that like traditional people do. And so they'll be like they'll they'll just pull that card at random when they have to make a trad person do something, mm-hmm. and they're like, "You wouldn't want to make baby Jesus sad. Gonna do what I say." Okay, so the, so the liberal priest was just punishing. Oh yeah, okay. I mean, you know, 
Yeah, that's a good experience too. Everyone needs that. Wow, that's you have to go through that experience. Talk but about anyway, not my, honoring the sacrament. Good grief! But, but anyway, you, um, Steve Skojic. I wrote a nice piece for him. I thought it was a nice piece on my Substack about when worldviews collapse and how to deal with it. Yeah, he was not very appreciative, oh. and uh, and then because um, I was trying to help him out, yeah. you know, and then. Uh, he posted about, and then shortly after that, he started posting about the Snake Island thing. Remember? Uh, yeah, the fake thing. <laughs> the fake thing where the the Ukrainians were like on an island somewhere, uh-huh. and uh, the the Russian ships and the and they valiant, valiantly died, being you know defiant to the last. Right. And he was like, posted a bunch of clap emojis and stuff, and I said, you know, that's not real, right? Just I you could tell it was not real instantaneous. So he already hated you for your article, and then you were. <laughs> and he said, I think a more or less a quote. Not everything is Gnostic nonsense or propaganda. Uh, or no, he said not everything is propaganda. Get out of here with your Gnostic uh, bullshit or something. Okay, okay. And I said, why do you think this is real? If you believe now that other people have lied to you, and he said, quote. Because I know how to think. And then, of course, it turned out that I was right. Of course. <laughs> and he never, ever came back. He hasn't like, come back what? and that apologized was... to you? No, I don't think he, <laughs> you know. I mean, it turned out I was right like the next day. Because yeah. Of course I... And that one didn't last long because those guys showed up, you know, as captors and all alive, like real quick. And they all surrendered. <laughs> Yeah, because nothing is ever tr- this is the golden rule. This is how you know when things are fake, right? If it's if someone says it, it's a lie. Now, I, you know I wouldn't go quite that far, but that's how that's how you know things are. If someone says it on the screen, yeah. It's not true, especially if it's overly emotive and it sounds like a movie script. Right. That's how you know it's written by script writers. Yep. And it isn't like uh, very rarely in in like battle do people come up with nice quips yeah. like they do in Captain America, <laughs> right? Very rarely does that. Now, occasionally, probably throughout history, right. someone has had like I would like to believe mm-hmm. that Leonidas really did say that we'll fight in the shade. Yeah, when they said there, but maybe he, maybe that was after. I think that might have been flourish. Yeah, probably was right. But it could have happened. Could have, could have happened. Uh, so, but it, uh, it, but most people are not quippy. Most people are not witty, and most people are certainly not witty when they're under threat of near immediate death. True. And so, they, and also, have you watched the the war footage out of Ukraine? It's boring. Yeah. I didn't know war could be so boring. This is the big disillusionment for me. Is that at least at least our photographers in Afghanistan made things more interesting? You know, they'd be they would edit it in such a way that you'd be driving along in your Humvee listening to music, and then the car would blow up, right? And then people start shooting at you, and they go, "Oh, go, 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 go back, That's good movie writing. That's good video. You know, like these, but these Russian people, uh. They, the Russians only have one military setting, which is, I guess, grind. 
Yeah, they're just you advance. Like, you slowly advance until you start taking fire. Then you call in artillery strikes. I mean, it's <laughs> it's so boring. Yeah. Why do you even bother? Yeah, I mean, you just they're gonna lose the war out of boredom. Your troops are like, this is awful. Can we do something more exciting? There have been, been, been a few a moments of something. Um, there have been a few moments of like really impressive small unit tactics. Uh, that I've seen mostly on ba- on on the part of the Ukrainians, honestly. Uh, but yeah, it has been it's been really boring overall. Oh, it's such a bo- that's why, why? They, that's why they're having to make up all the fake stuff to make it more interesting. <laughs> you gotta have something. I mean, to it, put I'm on not even CNN. mad at them at this point, just to spice up the sh- the show. Yeah, you know, like just to just to make the the movie better. Um, I appreciate what they're doing. In, in making up stories, but I can also tell when it's made up, mm-hmm. right? Because, um, I don't know. After a while, you just get a feel for when these things are are completely fabrications, right? And I could tell that the Snake Island thing was a complete fabrication uh, near instantly. And well, you don't have Mar- uh, you don't have Marvel movie brain. I don't have Marvel movie brain. Even though I've watched the Marvel movies and I enjoy them, I understand that they are cartoons. Yeah. Right? And other people, it appears that a lot of people in America have been fooled into thinking that that's how life works. And that actually, um, if they just are uh, have a, the proper smirk on their face, <laughs> then they can high kick a gun out of someone's... Yeah. Hands, <laughs> girl power, right, or 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 something. Yep. And this is becoming a real problem because more and more on the on the internet, you see videos, which is the realest thing on the internet, is like um, videos of uh, people in the hood fighting. Right. And more and more, you see women who are delusioned into thinking they can. Fight a man because of of these, and they just get repeatedly knocked unconscious. Yeah. Um. No, it is or, it is sad because those kickboxing lessons are not actually going to help you in a fight, ladies. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, they might a little bit. <laughs> you know, you better uh, land your you, first kick. <laughs> here's the thing, but a, a huge portion of American men could kill Ronda Rousey without any training whatsoever. It, that's true. Just be just out of size. Yeah. Like Ronda Rousey is a great judo lady. She went to the Olympics in judo and stuff. Um, and yet, uh, if she tried to punch a two hundred and fifty pound man, it wouldn't do very much because mm-hmm. a hundred pound weight advantage is huge, and it would not feel good. But he's not going to be knocked unconscious right. or anything. Um, so it just is, it's just not a thing. If you really want to beat up men, you got to take a lot of steroids. Uh, do a lot of mass gaining because it's just, it's mostly just about momentum, like in mass times velocity. Really a big, a big, big, fat, heavy person, a big fat whale of a woman would probably have the best chances. Yes. Yeah, because because you move the mass into the other mass, and if you're if you're outweighed by 150 pounds, 
then the amount of momentum you can deliver is going to be absorbed mostly by the other person's mass. Yeah. Which doesn't translate into velocity that jars his brain inside of his skull and knocks him unconscious. Right. It's so it's a problem. Uh, people have the Marvel brain and the Star Wars brain. And, you know, here's the bigger problem of the Marvel brain, Star Wars brain, is that people have gotten from modern movies, Marvel movies especially, probably, and, and Star Wars movies, um, a distorted concept of villainy. Yeah. Like, used to, used to in the past, in the long ago, uh, like in medieval times, villains were um, thought to be rebels mm-hmm. against the, the established correct order, yeah. right? Yeah. Revolutionary, like Satan. Mm-hmm. Right? But in modern time, villains are all themselves ex- victims of trauma and then expressing, they're unable to fit into the order and therefore... Uh, rage against it, but they really their deepest desire is to be in in the order. Ah, does that make sense? Yeah, like, um, like the new Joker movie is a perfect example of this, right? Where he's like an outcast, and so he himself is a victim, mm-hmm. and then that is why he does all the things that he does, and this is why people are always trying to psychoanalyze Putin and being like, uh, oh, well, he was. You know, like that, if I was Putin's mother, this would have been better because I would have accepted him or something. And so the the Marvel brain leads it when in reality, some people um, are evil. And in fact, most people are evil and do evil things, not because of uh, unprocessed trauma, but because of selfish seeking of power. Yeah. Right. And so the Marvel brain is a big problem that Steve Skojic and other people have. I don't know how to cure it. Um, I don't know how to cure it at all. But uh, the the so I, I think I think he's I don't think he unfollowed me or or blocked me, even though I ragged on him a bit for that. So props to him for that. But I did lose a lot of people this week for not being. Uh, overly distressed about the the Buka massacre, mm-hmm. which is also fake. This, I mean, I know it's upsetting for people because they're like, "Oh no, the Buka massacre! Look at all that. it's like that's not." They first of all, they said they just went through here; they just happened, and then they're like, "Oh, oh wait, no, actually, they've been lying here a month, and here are satellite images. <laughs> see the see the satellite images of the bodies, and you can't tell anything. It's like." It's just the A that is you can that's so easily manufactured. But well, B, they, they wouldn't be lying there for a few days. Like people will clean those up or at least cover them, or or the animals would eat them, yeah. which is what I said when they're driving by and there's that one guy that body splayed out face up on some like tire or something. I said if he's been there a month, his face would have been eaten by crows. Or dogs. There's lots of dogs running or, around yeah, there. Or dogs. Yeah. Like, you don't... Do people not hang out with dead bodies much anymore? No, they this don't. This is a big problem. Yeah. Things... Uh, if you leave a dead body outside... it. One time, I was hiking, and my legs cramped up real bad, mm-hmm. and I had to lie down for a while, because I, re- I had ran out of water, because I'm a great planner. <laughs> you know? When I'm in the woods. <laughs> I'd ran out of water miles ago. That checks out. 
And yeah, you've been hiking with me. You know how it goes. I just, I, I give no thought for the morrow. You know, and I just trust the the, the forest will provide mm-hmm. when I go out into the woods. And it always does. It's just a little hairy sometimes. Uh, but so I got out there and uh, I was lying down with, uh, for like an hour with cramped legs. And uh, buzzards already started to circle me and I was still alive. <laughs> I've been there like, you know, only like, uh, come on. Yeah. You guys are a little much. At least give me a day. You know, but if you if you were outside dead for a month, it, 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 the, your, your cheek of your face wouldn't look like it's fresh as a daisy. Mm-hmm. Which is what was in the... And also, every, it's like... Obviously, what is going on is they're trying to draw the United States into the war to help them. Yeah. And so they are making... They got some people and were like, hey, lay down and pretend you were all shot and had your hands bound. Now, I'm not saying the Russians have not done bad things in this war. Maybe they have. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe the Ukrainians have done bad things. I don't know what's happened. But you don't either, yeah. listener, is the thing. True. You're just... But I can, I can smell when something is very fake. And that is a photo op. Just like the the babies in the incubators and the Syrian gas attacks, which were not true, to try it because they want to manipulate the public into into giving their consent over for joining another land war in Asia, which is always a good idea. It's always worked out in the past. Uh, and but people people bought for fell for it real hard and they were mad at me. I was like, I don't know, it may it may not be real. I wasn't even like as hard as I am on the show where I'm like, that's fake. Mm-hmm. I was like, couldn't it be that this is um a staged? Yeah, I bet you and caught fire for like, that. People were like, I can't believe that you would have there are satellite photos. How dare you? <laughs> They're dead. <laughs> And I was, it's just the same thing. It's conservatives doing the same outrage that liberals do yeah. just over different things. Yeah. It's the same emotion set where it's like if I uh, go up to uh, a teenager in high school and I say, um, uh, I hope, he, I, and I say, I hope he has a good day. And they go, How oh, dare you? It's they, them. I hope they have a good day. <laughs> And they get upset. If I say, maybe that's a staged photo and we don't need, like, to stoke the fires of blood rage, the conservatives are like, America, we'll stand with Ukraine. And uh, it's just the same thing. And this is why there's no hope. Because um, people, people, uh, people want it. People want to be upset. They don't. They want to be upset and scared, and it and and like like it just doesn't. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just I'm just gassed out over it. <laughs> I guess I just wish that the public would at large would take a step. I know this is impossible. We'll just take is a step possible? back and realize we just wrapped up a pointless twenty year war in Afghanistan. Okay, it's twenty years. Yeah, immediately yeah, yeah. after we leave, we finally get out of there and all after all the destruction and nothing good has happened and the Taliban still controls the territory uh, and the 
the exit was a disaster. And so immediately after that, we are we are running headlong into another foreign war with no clear terms of victory, no clear U.S. strategic interest. It's almost as if the war machine must keep going because weapons must be sold for any reason at all costs. I mean, just just stop Uh, and think. Think for a second, guys, about that, please. I mean, it's, I know it's that's not our not that, not our audience. Just like the hypothetical normie out there. Yeah, I th- and you know I I grew up in a town that made most of the weapons, and I am uh, familiar with um the uh, the the weapons thing, and that's what they do. They they are all. First of all, let me tell you about how the business works. Okay. Because I grew up in, in one of the places where mo- a lot of these defense contractor companies um, are, are, are. Right. Like, like it was a place where, like, billboards on the, on the road would be like, look at our new attack helicopter. Purchase now. <laughs> because they only sell to each other, right? They're only, they're only, no one else in, is, in the public is buying pieces for an attack helicopter. Yeah. It is other companies that are like, oh, yeah, I need to put my sensor on the attack helicopter. So first of all, um, like once I was sitting in a coffee shop and I remember this. This was one of my first little red pill moments as a teenager. And there were a bunch of soccer moms talking, right? They're having lattes. And I will try to recreate their conversation. They go, so how's Jimmy doing? Oh, you know, business is good. It's just a big hassle. Uh, you know, he transferred ownership of the company to me. Oh, really? So he could get the woman-owned discount? Yeah. So we could get, like, the woman... We could say it was a female-owned thing. And I'm claiming to be... Uh, well, you know, I am. I am. I'm one, one-third Native American. I, I mean, we're pretty sure about that on my mother's side. And they would just go on and on. And I'd listen about <laughs> all their, their schemes to take advantage of government programs. Yeah, they're just get trying to get and, contract awards. Yeah, the, she was not in any way involved with the company, but it was in her name. Yeah. The, and that's true of a lot of female-owned businesses, quote-unquote. It's mm-hmm. just their husband using their wife as a... call it, to get the money. Uh, and to get, like, all the... Um, benefits that come with such things yeah well how many the contract award system is based on how many diversity boxes you can check on your small business at least with the small business component of it a lot of them would marry black women just for that that's no joke (laughs) it's so sad it's very sad they'd be like oh you know what i need a black woman yeah and so i'm sure that there was you know i'm sure it was based on love or something maybe Mm -hmm. mm-hmm But it was suspicious. Um, and so uh, then they would, they'd make a, like, like Raytheon had a huge campus there. And they would make uh, some sensor for like a tank or whatever. And then they would um, go to the uh, senators and say, well, we need to buy more. This helps the state grow. The, the economy is people buy the sensors. So he would be like, well, he'd go to the military budget and be like, well, we need to buy more of the sensors for the tanks because it'll help the thing. But really, it was just so that the state would get more income, right? And it, and that 
is a problem when that becomes like a big portion of your constituency's um, income, then you want to do things to support them. And that seems like that should be what you do, right? Because your job as a, as a congressman is ostensibly to increase the uh, prosperity of your state, mm-hmm. right? And so on one level, it's, a, it's, it's just a conflicting incentives because if that's what will increase your state thing, then you want the military to buy that, but then they have to use the state and it's just has to justify what happens and it becomes a nightmare where uh, the lady in the coffee shop um, is actually drone bombing by proxy children in Yemen. Yeah. And so um, that's how that works. But people somehow they talk about the military industrial complex, but they never connect the dots of like, oh, well, maybe they are maybe these are commercials for war products, which is what they are. That's mm-hmm. what the propaganda. It's just a commercial for a war product, um, and people people like doing war. I guess it makes it makes it makes Americans feel powerful. Maybe I don't know. I'm not a I'm not a big fan of the. We also haven't needed it, and it's also it's also annoying, and, uh, and gross. But the other thing. Um, that people fell for this week was, are you familiar with Dolly and open AI? Uh, yeah, the scam giant. Is it it a giant scam? Giant scam. I thought those, those AI generated images were pretty cool. Like they've got the, this person does not exist and it generates the faces that look real. Yeah. I mean, how much of that, uh, how much of this are you saying is fake? Now All I saw I saw the images that Dolly was putting out, which is a new new algorithm, were almost unbelievably accurate in taking the caption and turning it into an image. Yeah, almost unbelievably to the point where it's actually unbelievable. <laughs> uh, Sam Altman is this guy running this thing, mm-hmm. and uh, he has nine hundred thousand Twitter followers, and this is. I want to, this is a this is a case study in how to run a big scam. Uh, it's first of all, open AI should be called closed AI because you're not allowed to the, the source code is not open. Yeah. Despite the and they refuse to make it open. Okay. Because if they did, people would be like, this does not work. You are lying. Uh, but that doesn't matter because people again, they you have to to to, to con people into a war. Or into a Snake Island story, mm-hmm. or into believing in AI. You have to want it to be, and people really want to worship AI gods. Oh, they, they, really they want, sure do. Yeah, they want the computer to tell them what to do and solve all their problems, and so they're willing to believe it. And that's why, if you want to start a scam, just figure out what people want to believe, but which is currently unattainable, mm-hmm. and sell that to them. Say that it's already happening. Say that you've yeah. done it. Say that you have it. And you can you can be tremendously successful. And so props to Sam Altman for scamming millions of dollars out of Americans. Because I'm of the opinion that as long as you can be scammed, you deserve to be. Now, does that should that influence your decision to support this show in our in our Buy Me a Coffee or, or St. Nicholas Project? No. It shouldn't. Because uh <laughs> It's it's because it's not the same thing, um, but I believe that if you are if you if you can be scammed, 
then you deserve to be scammed because it's all the scams run off um, your own and desire for things, which are which are usually evil, right? So um, Sam recently yesterday he posted a nice thread on the Twitter, and it was like, "Do you have an, so Dolly is like this subset of OpenAI, and OpenAI claims to be this AI that like." learns images and, th- and it, it does everything. It's like the computer from Star Trek where you can just talk to it. And it's like, yes, I'll do that. Boop, boop, boop. Right. Um, and so th- it makes these images mm-hmm. allegedly. Right. Um, so you, you like give it a prompt. You give it a prompt like, Hey, make me a circle. And it'll be like, oh, okay, I'll draw a circle. Boop, boop. Draws a circle. Now that could be doable because you could have it be like, and it just draw a circle. Um, but what is not possible is the stuff that Sam is claiming. So he has, have an idea for Dolly, reply with a caption, and I'll generate 20 or so, you know, using the, the Dolly OpenAI thing. Uh, and he says, these work better if they're longer and detailed. So people give him text prompts, and he allegedly, again, no one can see it happening, which is one of the things of a scam. No one ever sees it. It's always invisible. Um, it's the magician doing his work behind the sheet, mm-hmm. right? Um so people give him these prompts and then he a few minutes later will reply with an image that matches their prompt allegedly generated by the AI. So this fellow named Ryan Peterson, blue check. Um, he's a C his thing says he's a CEO of another tech company called Flexport, whatever that is. Uh, he says a shipping container with solar panels on top and a propeller on one end that can drive through the ocean by itself. This self-driving shipping container is driving under the Golden Gate Bridge during a beautiful sunset with dolphins jumping all around it. <laughs> and then he gives a picture of that. Like like a like a 3D painting. Mm-hmm. CD uh of a shipping it's it's like a shipping container with solar panels on it. I don't see the dolphins, but it's they got the propeller and there's the Golden Gate Bridge in the sunset. And people are like, "Wow, Soy face. Uh, Okay. Fair. This other fella, Patrick McKenzie, who is, uh, he works at the internet at Stripe. Mm -hmm. um, And and, and on accelerating startups, accelerating startups, keep that in mind. Like OpenAI, maybe. He says, rabbits attending a college seminar on human anatomy. Of rabbits sitting around a desk um, in little chairs, and there's a professor rabbit in a suit with a with a pointer stick. And they're looking at something on the table, which looks like some sort of vague anatomy parts. It's done in sort of a Lewis Carroll um, watercolor painting sort of way. All right, fun little fun little picture. The candle in the window. Another person, Miko. Kutman, who's a, who has 13, 16 followers, is a software engineer, product developer, and art enthusiast, allegedly. He says, a rabbit detective sitting on a park bench reading a newspaper in a Victorian setting. <clears throat> and then, ta-da! A rabbit on a bench in, in, like, in front of a Victorian house wearing uh, Sherlock Holmes garb with a monocle. <clears throat> right? Uh, then another one says, and one guy who's 
<clears throat> name it has dot eth in it that's always good mm-hmm. like the cryptocurrency yeah it's got a crypto domain <laughs> thing yeah. another another small account that appears sort of he's into nfts he does things with nft companies a wise cat meditating in the himalayas searching for enlightenment cat meditating like in the buddhist pose these are all images that are very detailed allegedly generated by a uh, an ai a computer like you put this text into the computer and it gives you the painting or this one this guy says uh, the rock who's another very small account uh, says robot dinosaur versus monster trucks in a coliseum and then you get a a robot dinosaur versus monster trucks in the Coliseum of Rome. Like just rawr, he's roaring at the monster trucks. <laughs> so, um, this, uh, what, uh, oh, there's another one, Androids Dreaming of Electric Sheep. There's a robot, and he's got his eyes closed, and then above, like, beside him is some sheep with, like, with lightning bolts, right? So, um, that's not real. Computers can't do that. And these accounts asking that he's chosen out of the thousands of people which said different things, which were not, did not generate images of. Um, like Alan Turing sitting in heaven watching the birth of a robotic superintelligence on Earth. No <laughs> image for that. Um, mini cockapoo hitting a five iron at Augusta National. Well, he can't do them all. I mean, you know. Uh, hold on. You're just uh, mad because he didn't pick yours. No, I didn't do one. Oh. I didn't do one. <laughs> um, it's just so obvious that it's not true because, first of all, here's well, here's how the scam goes. You get people in on it who are who are have a stake in your scam company, mm-hmm. and you say, "Listen, we're gonna do a little promotion." Uh, it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit, it's a little bit like a advertisement. It's not, you know, but it's advertising. It's not a scam. And we will make these pictures up beforehand and then you ask for this and then I'll put it there. And people be like, whoa, and this will show the real kid and, and they'll sell it to these people like, oh, OpenAI will be able to do this soon one day. It's just mm-hmm. not quite there yet. We're showing the potential. Right. You got to get but funded really, first. But really, you got to get funding for it. But really, these images are undoubtedly made by human beings. And then the, he seeded the audience with plants to ask for specific things. It's the oldest magician trick in the book is to, can I have a volunteer from the audience and have your volunteer already there? Yeah. Who already knows is in on it and will participate in the scam. That's the oldest trick in the whole book. Right, and that's just what this is. They've already got images come come up with, and they says like someone drew an elephants at a tea party, and then they said, okay, when you come in there, say an elephant on a tea party. Josh Bickett asked for that, and then he gets lo and behold, he gets what he asked for, and he also is a software engineer, an NFT guy. Mm-hmm. Isn't it strange that everyone he picked is either an extremely small account like a burner account, or someone who is in some sort of new tech startup company involving crypto. <laughs> that's that, a little suspicious. That's a little suspicious. He could have just been picking sus. his buddies. I mean, you know. A little sus. Maybe he's just picking his buddies. 
Well, he is he is just picking his buddies, uh, but he um he, he is just picking his buddies. But, right. Uh, they're in on it. But they're in on it. Um this one like someone that wasn't in on it is a PhD candidate mm-hmm. uh, at at, at uh, UCLA allegedly named uh, Zhao Jin Ma. Okay. And he said um he said his prompt was deep learning hitting a wall. Then Sam which is this is what they call their AI deep learning. Yeah. Sam says, "Oh, that returned an image, but I won't post it, but wow, the AI is getting smart." <laughs> uh, so tiresome. People why not why not post before. it? Why not post it? Why not post it? Exactly. Why not post it? Because it's not real. Wow, the eye is getting smart. Googly eyes. That's not. I I don't I don't understand why people. Um, everyone that he responded to is either into OpenAI, so small it seems to be a burner account, or has Bitcoin in their profile. Yeah, every single person. Probably they all have a stake in this company. And have been, or are the same person running multiple accounts, which is, which is very odd. Well, the thing is, it's so easy for, for small people like to stake a project secretly now because you can do it on on blockchain technology. Right. So it's really easy to invest in something like this and it not be a matter of public record. And not be a matter of public record. And then you say, listen, you asked for this thing and I'm going to show you some things that they uh, made up. and. They're like, okay, and they may even believe that the the image came up from the AI machine, mm-hmm. right? But I promise you, there's like, on the team of OpenAI is like seven to ten digital artists who have made a bunch of paintings beforehand and then say, oh, no, the computer did this. And you can't see the OpenAI's open code because it's not open, and... No, you can't go onto the OpenAI's website and type in a text prompt and see what happens. Right. That can't be done. And no, you can't interact with it in any way except through our representatives who you can then ask for pictures and they will selectively pick which ones and give examples. Now, there are some of these that you can you can do it yourself, but they don't return anything as cool as what Sam Altman's thing was putting up. No. I mean, it's not even not even close. No, like a Shibuya Inu Shiba Inu dog wearing a beret and black turtleneck. Yeah, and then it gives you that. That's not possible. AI doesn't work. AI isn't real. Computers cannot think. They are not capable of parsing. If this were, then this is a big scam. Uh, that's that's been running for a while. Like people think that like, um, Google has a big AI when really what Google has is a giant army of data slaves Mm -hmm. who move data around uh, in many cases, largely by hand. It's not, it's not AI doing a lot of anything because AI isn't real because computers are just abacuses that are very, very fast. Now computers are fine. I'm not against them, but they're not intelligent. They don't think. Yeah. 
I would I would shoot an android in the head un without a second thought because it's not real. It'd be like shooting a computer. Chip. Yeah, and also, uh, and also that's not going to happen for a while, if ever, because they can't do robotics like that. And most of those things coming out of uh, what is Bo- that Boston Dynamics company? are also fake. Like that one where they were dancing? Yeah, that was that's not real. CGI. <laughs> that's <guys>. not real. <laughs> <laughs> that's there I mean, I got C- one look at that. I mean, it wasn't even it wasn't even difficult to see that that is not real. Yeah, they made that up. It's not a real thing that is happening. And people are like, "Oh, the thing, the robots are coming very soon in the thing." And that's cuz they want that to be true. But it's not. I've been being told robots are coming my whole life, and there's still no robots. The best we have is a Roomba that gets stuck in the corner <laughs> and goes. Well, those those arms, um, those arms that they use in in manufacturing facilities are cool, but they're pre-programmed to do a set motion over and over mm-hmm. and over again. Mm-hmm. Like they just do one thing, which is great. Like that's a really cool way to manufacture vehicles, but it's not. It's not making decisions. No, and computers can't make decisions. It's not possible for computers to make decisions. Computers, uh, they just, they can make things that pseudo decisions. Like, when you play chess against the computer, Mm -hmm. all that happens is the computer has a list of all possible moves and then all possible branching trees of all those moves. And it looks them up and it deduces which one gives it the most it doesn't even deduce isn't the right word it just has a value that's calculated by a spreadsheet inside there somewhere or the equivalent of a spreadsheet and whichever value leaves them least open to attack it selects every time and that's just all it does it just it just because there's a finite number of moves and you can you can pick which one and then you and that's all that happens and if people had the time and energy to to do that with a, um, you could do the same thing. There's no decision-making process, though. Like, it isn't thinking. And this is why computers um, have continuously fit. This is why self-driving cars are still not here, mm-hmm. despite all the hoopla from years ago about how we'll have self-driving cars. Cars cannot work in the real world because there's too many, ver- they're, they don't, they're not thinking about anything, right? So... I don't know. It's just it's just been a week of scams that people continuously fall for, and it. Uh, I guess it should not upset me anymore that people continuously fall for such obvious scams like the Buka Slaughter and the Snake Island and uh, the OpenAI making a, a Victorian detective rabbit. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know that's what they want to do. That's what they want to do. I guess. Uh, it will be the false god at the end of time, by the way. AI, supposedly? Yeah. Yeah, yeah and it's going to be people sitting around worshipping a computer. And all it's going to be is just like in The Wizard of Oz, is a bunch of little Chinese women inside there reading whatever slips of paper you pass through and passing out answers. <laughs> That's all it will be. Yeah. But people like, you know, worship the... And, and I guess... Our goal on this show is to become those little Chinese women. Wait, what? 
Like, if people are going to be worshipping a giant artifice of a thing, then we need to be the ones telling them what to do from inside of it, right? No. <laughs> that? No. Well, I mean, like, I don't... Because they think we could use the power for good. We could be like, stop worshipping <laughs> us. We are... No, that's like, you know, I can use the ring of power for good. I think we can, though. No, I don't think we can. <laughs> you know, I mean, respect the Frodo, but we're different. Right? Uh, no. We are we're Turn made back, different. Sumo! <laughs> Turn back. We're made different. We can grasp the ring of power without it corrupting us. Throw it into the fire! <laughs> but if we throw it into the fire, we can't use its power for good, see? And so this is where this is where Sam and Frodo went wrong. Uh, and so what we need to be on this show is we need to somehow figure out how to set ourselves up. We need to run a scam like this. And then have people being like coming to us, except ours will be like life advice AI, maybe. Mm-hmm. And people will like, will be like, we have an open AI. Ours would be called um, really open AI or something. <laughs> and uh, ours will be called Therap E. So T H E R P A. Therap dash E. Therap E. And people will type in their responses, and then you and I, and they'll pay money, right? And then you and I will read them, and we'll just send back, like, uh, you know, little little life advice, like, stop drinking. We could call it uh, Dear no. Ab-E. Oh, Ab-E. That's perfect. <laughs> Abby. You ask Abby what to do, right? Yeah. And then it, Abby is just you and me on the other side of an email chain. Right. And, and we were like, oh, man, that's rough. And we'll just type in, uh, uh, go try being gay, send. <laughs> oh, no, we got to give and him good like, advice. <laughs> and he'll be like, oh, man, I didn't think about that. Or we could, you know, uh, uh, meth will solve your problems. Yeah, if people thought they could ask an AI the solutions to their they deep life problems, they would do it. Like, people would flock to that thing. Yeah, they would do whatever it said because people, what people want more than anything. This show is finally going to be profitable, baby. <laughs> I know. That, that, we've been trying to work on a way to monetize this show for ages. <laughs> this is how. Because what people want more than anything is to offload their decisions. Man, onto true. somebody else. Yeah. This is why people love authority because they, the guilt of their own decision making. If it goes, they want to do something where if it goes wrong... They can't be blamed. Right. And they want someone to tell them to do the thing they want to do anyway. Right? So what we do is we have an open AI, Abby, and you write into Abby, and it'll say, like, I'm having, you know, I feel bad. I don't love my husband. And it'll say, uh, and the Abby will return, uh, a f- the highest form of self-care is to pursue new lovers. <laughs> And the all-wise Abby will just tell them whatever they were wanted fishing for anyway. Right. And they'll be like, this is great. And they feel then they feel like the moral weight of whatever they wanted to do is gone. And then, you know, and will Abby be used for a little bit of nefarious things? A little, it has to be a little bit. But overall, it's going to be good. Overall, it's a force for good. <laughs> right. <laughs> we are built different than Sam and Frodo. It's all, you know, I think we can grasp the ring. Of AI power without it corrupting us fully. Okay. You know, um, so, uh, 
that's that's what I hope the future will be because goodness knows people don't donate to this show. <laughs> some so of them do. To, some of them do. I mean, some of them, but we have to figure out a way to make money somehow. Yeah. At this point, if we don't, if we if we do do this, it's not even our fault. We're just we're just we're just making it. We're just uh, finding a monetization scheme. Yeah. Can't fault people for that. No. Right. No. So I'm gonna start app. I'm gonna start this Twitter account, Abby, and it's gonna be claimed to be an AI generated advice giving machine that I that that we invented, mm-hmm. and I'll come up with a fake name like I'm Doctor Um Sabinowitz or something. Okay. Uh, from Tel Aviv, <laughs> and uh, they will people will love it, and it's gonna be awesome, and I will give the best advices. <laughs> I give the best advices to people when they ask me. Uh, and, you know, maybe if it starts, if it starts, people start getting suspicious. I need it because you need to have an exit plan for your scam. This is number two about having a scam. First thing of running a scam is identify something that people desperately want, but which is not possible and promise to give it to them. A. That's how we, then two, you need to have an off ramp because people will catch on eventually. You need, so the off ramp is like, like Microsoft's Tay. Mm-hmm. Remember that AI? Oh, yeah. When people start getting suspicious, the advice that my AI will spit out will start turning increasingly racist and violent. Awesome. And well, just don't... I, don't I had to shut it down because the AI went rogue. Well, no, don't... If somebody says something stupid, don't tell them to... No, no, but it will be like... Uh, I don't know. It'll say, have you, have you considered blaming the Jews? Send. Or whatever. And then I'll be like, oh no, uh, my AI, Abby, has turned a- a- anti-Semitic. I have to <laughs> shut it down before it becomes AI Hitler. And then okay. I shut it down, and then I'm clear. Not only did I help people by by progressing the world of AI mm-hmm. and bringing us one step closer to the singularity digital utopia, but I also stopped robot Hitler. So I'm a hero. Yeah, it's a win-win. It's a win-win. It's a win-win. I, there's nothing. There's nothing wrong with any of it. Uh, it's all good, and um, that's that's my plan for the future. But I wanted to discuss another series of frauds today. Um, today is a show about about frauds, um, and it is. Have you read a book called Dissolving Illusions? No. Who's that by? Uh, it's by it's by a, by a lady. <laughs> by a lady. Um. Thing is, you ask me these questions, and then I don't. Um, <laughs> well, I assume you have like the book or notes or something with you. I have, I have the book, but I, see, this is the thing. I never, I never know such information. I, I see. Let I me see. look it up. Um, I'll fix it in post. This, no, it's okay. Dissolving <laughs> Illusions book. Because I've read the book, mm-hmm. I've taken notes on the book by Susan Humphreys, M.D. Susan Humphreys, medical doctor, right? Um. Uh, this has always been a problem to me because you know, as like a physics a physicist, yeah, what I technically am by some state, people expect you to be very technically minded. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting the one of the first times I was yelled at by by a professor in school was because he asked me. He didn't really yell at me too much, but he was just ups- very upset. He asked me what edition of the textbook I was using, miracle analysis class. And I said, I don't know. He went, 
you don't know? <laughs> like that. Like Scooby-Doo. How can you not? And like people and like other people in the class would be like, oh, yeah, it's edition 3.7. Whatever. And I've noticed this um, in many areas of my life. Like people be like, what car do you have? I, I couldn't tell you what car I have right now. It's a green one. <laughs> it's a green car. They're like, what's the year? I like, I have no idea. I know vaguely when it was it was it was bought before my daughter was born, so I vaguely can work out like, oh, probably this year. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Or when people are like, "What kind of iPhone do you have?" I don't. I have an iPhone. I don't know the model. I don't know the if it's an S or a six or a seven or a three. No idea. Because that sort of information has never been valuable to my to my mind. Mm-hmm. And like I've read many books and have no idea who wrote them until I go back and look it up. Um, I just am interested in really the like the numbers of a thing, and like the technical specifications of a thing. I could not occupy less of a place, <laughs> which is a problem when you do things with like machines, yeah, like technical, you know. And often people be like, well, which one uh, was broken? And I'd be like, hmm. the one that, that back there in the side room or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I don't even know. To be honest, I don't even know the name of the road that I live off of. <laughs> I know the specific, I know my address, right? But I live off a little side road that comes off of a, of a bigger road. Uh-huh. I don't know the name of that road. <laughs> and I've lived there. Over 10 years. <laughs> I have no idea what the name of that road is. Or the road that... I don't, I don't know. Because I just, I just... I think of terms of like... Will you turn at the mulberry bush? Mm-hmm. You know? I don't know the name of the road. Uh, or, you know, once you get to the bottom of the hill, then you go left or whatever. I don't... Like the names of the roads and like all the technical... I didn't it's know you were. I, uh, I didn't know you were so in touch with your feminine side. Well, yeah, I mean that's how that, because that is. I think that's what you have to be. There needs to be more of that in the sciences. This is where I'm pro diversity. Oh, okay. okay. Because you need uh, you need what what you need is what you need is uh, you don't need more women, obviously, mm-hmm. right? But you need more um, men who sort of think like that. Mm-hmm. Because women, I mean, what are they going to do? Yeah, I don't know. Those being there, like, be given eh, birth all the pigtails. time. Pigtails, yeah. You know, they they'll be like protons and pigtails or whatever. <laughs> uh, but um, like all of the best. This is the this is why this is why, in my opinion, physics has stalled, and is it hasn't produced anything really interesting since turn of the century uh, with quantum mechanics and relativity and so on. Uh, is because those guys were all, yes, they had technical knowledge, but they were also deeply poetic. Mm-hmm. Like Heisenberg had a poet's soul. And he was he was operating first and foremost on intuition. Yeah. And then working the math out after the fact. And that's the way you have to make big leaps, in my opinion, in knowledge, is you, you just sort of feel it, and then you describe it later in words. You- and that's what I think we need more of. And I've, but this is but the system that we have today 
pushes out people that think like that very strongly. Because people get mad at you if you don't know what version of the textbook you have. Do you think the use of computers for literally everything we do now has made people think like computers instead of like poets? Yes. And I've, I've, I, yes. That's why I've been trying to, to, to get people interested in poetry again, but no one, it's a losing battle. It's a losing battle because you have the, have the, the iPhone or whatever. So, like, I don't know. I, I don't, if you were to ask me, I'm looking at my laptop now, and so I can see what brand it is. Mm hmm. If you'd asked me what brand is your laptop before I opened it, I would have not have known. So what? Maybe this obsession. I'm like that Dilbert cartoon where you the, he, they're in the thing and he if you put up a cardboard underneath their chin so they can't look down, he's like, "What are you wearing?" It's like I don't know. You know. What if this obsession with the idea of AIs creating beautiful artwork is because humans, by and large, yes. can't can't create beautiful artwork anymore? Mm-hmm. Most people don't even have that. I mean, it's not it's not in their brain anymore. Like, yeah, we're all thinking like computers. You're all thinking like computers, and this is why this is why technology gets more and more refined. Like, what we have gets more and more refined because you can refine the the technological mind is great at refining specifics and yeah. making it like, oh, do this but faster and smaller and better. right. But it doesn't come up with anything new. And this is why it's funny really, that the solution we haven't come up with anything new in a long time. Well, it's funny that their answer to this problem is to make a computer that thinks like a human should instead of just uh-huh, humans exactly. that think like humans should. <laughs> and and you think like, oh, well, I'll make a te- I'll make a computer that thinks poetic for me. Right. Which is which is so backwards and will not work. Right. But this is why they, they can get fooled so easily on this, because they've killed that part of their soul. Which can which can intuit, yeah. Like Steve Skojic, who couldn't intuit instantly that that was fake. Mm-hmm. Snake Island story. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. And, no, and actually, though, uh, though I was being a little silly, I do think I think women can make can make very good physicists if they if they don't try to be like men, right? Where they have that autistic sort of tech. This is the problem. They get women into into STEM things, uh, and then they the women try to be very technically minded. Mm-hmm. And my thing has always been no, no, no. Use the emotional part of yourself. Like turn that against like electrons. Interesting, because that is a better. That is in some sense that you need both. You need the the very analytical mind, but you also have to have. Like relativity was not born out of anything, but a, and and like special relativity and stuff and quantum mechanics was born out of great leaps of intuition. Yeah, not out of like someone making a discovery in a lab. Mm-hmm. You know, they were like, "How could this be?" And they'd have this thing, and they work. Then they'd make up experiments to see if check if it was. Verse, you don't make the experiment, and then usually you come up with a crazy idea, and then you work backwards. True. Um. But so, Dissolving Illusions, this is all because you asked me who wrote the book. Sorry. Ugh, Susan Humphreys and Roman Bistrankic, right? So, I understand if people are a little less trustworthy of the book now because it has someone named Bistrankic in it because an Eastern European name mm-hmm. in this day and age. Yeah, it's touchy. Is a little. But anyway, um, it is. Uh, it is a, it's. It's an interesting book. It's one of the premier anti-vaxxer books from a bygone age. 
Really? Okay. From the age before COVID. Okay. Back when anti-vaccine was different. Um, but it is a, but the thing that's interesting about it is the historical, um, and she backs all this up with like, you know, documentation and like, here's what they were about how these vaccine narratives came to be. And you also see like everything old is new again. It's the same. This is the same. Everyone is on the wheel of Samsara, just spinning round and round, reliving the same plots (laughs) over and over again. And only on this show do we offer you liberation. From the, we offer you enlightenment in moksha, uh, and and though we do all this, people still do not donate. But it's okay. I'm not bitter. <laughs> not bitter. So this the forward of this book is is also interesting. It's by a Dr. Jane uh, Donegan, uh, who's a British lady, mm-hmm. and uh, she writes the forward. She says vaccination is regarded as the most important health advance in the 20th century by most health professionals and lay people. Although the dramatic decreases in morbidity and mortality from disease that occurred in the course of the 20th century have been credited to the introduction of vaccines, scant acknowledgement has been given to improving social conditions. And that's that's very uh, real. Because ask yourself this question, um, like the mortality rate in places like, I don't know, Congo or yeah. parts of India remains high. And their life expectancy remains low, even though we have from disease, even though they have vaccines, right? Plenty. Mm-hmm. But what actually seems to help people more than anything is like a sewer system. Yeah, clean water. <laughs> like that seems to be the number one thing that that brings up uh, the health of a population is like a, a sewer system and having enough to eat. And so she goes on to say, despite questioning the safety and efficacy of vaccine by reputable medical men since its introductions, uh, debate has been and is increasingly discouraged. And this was written before COVID. So after this, information published in scientific journals used to support their position, other views being regarded as unscientific. It was received as an article of faith for me and my contemporaries. The vaccination was the, underline in bold, single most useful health intervention that has ever been introduced. Along with my medical and nursing colleagues, I was taught that vaccines were the reason children and adults stopped dying from diseases for which there were vaccines. Now, there are other diseases, and she goes into this, like um, scarlet fever, uh, (coughs) rheumatic fever. Typhus, typhoid, cholera, and so forth, which there were never any vaccines for, which also went away. But, you know, that just, those just went away. Yeah. The ones we have vaccines for, they went away because of the vaccines. It's a the confounding ones we didn't data have for, they went away for reasons. Yeah, for reasons. <laughs> right? Yeah. The diseases all went away, whether there was a vaccine for them or not. Right. How is that? And, you know, it's, as an aside, they're not going away anymore. They're not going away right now. I mean, there's a lot of new vaccines out there that have not eliminated the diseases that they're for, like the ones of old kind of did. Well, you're gonna. That's mostly a myth too. We're gonna go into that. They didn't do so. So you would think that doctors would be like, "Listen, okay, we got all these diseases like cholera and stuff, and typhoid and dysentery." Uh, and those diseases went away for reasons, and we'll say those are improved social conditions. Mightn't the ones that we claim 
because of vaccines have been for the same reason. And they said, no, that couldn't be it. Because we had the vaccine for those. See, just like how you introduce a COVID vaccine when COVID is already going down. And then when it goes away, you credit it with the vaccine. Hmm? I don't know. I'm just asking questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember during the height of uh, like the, the COVID thing, yeah. I said to number 15, I said, you know, this is probably mostly mass hysteria. And he was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> reasons, reasons. Reasons, reasons, because at the local hospital, I have a doctor friend, and he gobble-a-boo, gobble-a-goo, vaccinated, undead, unvaccinated dead, back and forth. Yeah. And everybody has an an anecdote about, how my cousin, he was the shot, he didn't get the shot, my uncle died, he wore a mask and didn't, and then the, whatever you want to do. To reinforce your existing belief system, you can you, everyone constructs a narrative around it, right? But mind you, here's my point in all this. 4,000 years ago, people would have likewise attributed most of the things that happened to whether or not they'd made the god Krom happy. <laughs> and they would have constructed brilliant narratives, and you'd be like, you know, maybe it isn't because of Krom. And they're like, listen, I sacrificed the Krom, and then he got better. What do you want? <laughs> and it would be like this perfect one-to-one. You, there'd be no argument with it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and some people wouldn't get better after you sacrifice the crime. And they say, well, st- you know, it doesn't work for everybody. Which is what happens with the, the vaccine. It's just like, well, you know, it does. some people it just doesn't they get a bad case. Other mm. people get a mild case. Some people uh, get a bad case of being cursed by crime. And some people get a mild case of cursing by crime. It's the same thing, right? Over and over again. Yeah. It's always the same thing. Um, and they would have produced all the same types of antidotes, uh, anecdotes about like, there would have been just as coherent, like, well, my cousin, my cousin, uh, he did the, he did the sacrifice for the crumb and, um, it, he got better. And my uncle, he didn't wear the crumb face mask, ritual face mask. And so he got possessed by the demon. Yeah. And it would have made just as much sense. Because when you're dealing with invisible things, things behind the curtain, you can construct whatever imaginary thing that you want to work, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, she says, along with most doctors, I regarded parents who would not vaccinate their kids as ignorant or sociopathic or um, and perhaps putting the life of everyone else at risk by reducing herd immunity. Have we heard this before? Mm, we have. You're putting other people at risk. Uh, you know, and so uh, this is not, these are not new things. These are not new problems. Uh, and doctors have thought this way for a while. It's just COVID upticked it, right? Uh, indeed, she says, at, speci- at special clinics in the 1980s, this is still the lady that does the forward, I used to counsel parents who wouldn't vaccinate their children against whooping cough. 1980s whooping cough. What happened to whooping cough, by the way? Uh, it's still Which, out there. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Which was regarded as the problematic vaccine in those days. I acknowledged there were dangers associated with the vaccine. I was a truthful doctor. But I told them the official line. This is the official line I told them in the 1980s. 
The disease was 10 times more likely to cause death or disability than the vaccine, so any sane person would choose to get vaccinated. Listen. Listen. Whooping cough is 10 times more likely to kill you. Now, no one worries about that today. Why not? Just It just went away. Just into the wind. What changed? And keep in mind, this was the science at the time. There were numbers. They had graphs. There were statistics. But when's the last time you ever knew anyone that died of whooping cough? I know people that have had it, but I don't know anybody that's died of it. Yeah, it doesn't, it, it, it's, it's the cough that people can get sometimes, and you don't really need a big government campaign about it, and there's not a, it's not a scary thing in most cases, and that's because what we call whooping cough has simply changed over the years. You so want, you're saying that whooping cough was more deadly at one point, but isn't that dangerous now? Uh, I, I, no, I know, I know was, somebody that had a had a pretty bad case of it. I mean, at least it lasted for a long time and was. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying that people don't get coughs, mm-hmm. but but whooping cough just vanished from the public consciousness largely as not a thing to be overly concerned about. Whereas in the 1980s, like you got to get this because you might die, right? And every it's a big problem. And then it's just like, well, whatever. Uh, the AIDS came along and they just sort of forgot about it. They had another thing to worry about. No, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of how, like how flu just disappeared for a year. <laughs> yeah. Poof. Yeah. <laughs> poof. Yeah. I never really got a good explanation on how there was zero flu in a year. That's because there is no explanation because it doesn't make any sense. Because this is, see, this is an epistemology show dressed up like a show about con artists mm-hmm. and medical illusions and deep fake AIs. Because, Here's my point. What the universe really... The universe is actually made of language. I've said that before. But the universe is actually made of language. And you can and do manipulate how reality presents itself by the words you speak. And so when you... You're... you're it's Adam ma- naming the, the animals in the garden. When you, when you name things a certain way and classify them, reality shifts around you. To sort of make that so. And then when you stop doing it, reality also shifts around the other way. So when you start, when you, everyone begins to worry about whooping, whooping cough, and they talk about it, and they incessantly go on and on about it, it manifests itself in a real way, and then when you stop, it goes away. And I know that's a bit of an out there um, position for people, but that, that is closer to what's happening. Like in 1994, there was a massive measles rubella vaccination campaign in the UK. Yeah. Massive. Seven million school children were vaccinated against measles and rubella to protect them from an epidemic of measles, which was said to be imminent. There's, it's, the hospitals are just about to be overrun soon. Trust us. There's an imminent epidemic, right? And she writes, in those days, there was only one measles shot in the schedule. It was a live viral vaccine. It was supposed to be like the wild measles virus. We were told, quote, one dose and you're immune for life. Hmm? Mm-hmm. I did not realize that one shot, however, might not protect every child. Mm. No vaccine is 100%. But the chief medical officer then said that two shots. Yeah. <laughs> this is 1994, so that even two shots yeah. uh, would, would help. But it would not necessarily protect children in the epidemic it, when the epidemic came. 
And if it did get bad enough, they would need a third shot. This is in 1994 again, remember? Mm-hmm. He also said the best. So in the, the same thing is like, well, you know, it doesn't work. Do it more. Do it more. Yeah. Boost. Boost, baby. Boost. It isn't working. And the reason it isn't working is because you haven't done it enough. You got to do more of it. If you just do more of it, it will work more. So she writes, this left me in a quandary. Obviously, maybe the risk-benefit ratio if, is what they said, and you were 10 times more likely to die from the thing, the risk. But but if you have to keep getting the vaccine over and over and over again, surely you're compounding the risks of the vaccine. And is this still the same benefit ratio here playing out? Great question. Right? Like, if you just have to keep boosting and... Then she also asked, if, but and also if children can have the shot twice and still get the disease, they need a third shot. This means they've been exposed to all the risks of the vaccine two or three times. And at the same time, the risk of the disease as well and of still spreading it. So is it? Mm. Is it? Hmm. That's an ugly picture. It's an ugly picture. But you got to keep boosting. You got to keep boosting. See, but it's not working, Dr. Giga Chad. I'm still getting sick. That means it really is working, though. Because if you didn't have it, you would be so dead. Yeah. From all the... Your symptoms would be so much worse. Right? Uh, Keep in mind, the entire premise of viruses and their mutations stems from a worldview based on evolution, which is nonsensical in the extreme. This whole thing... This is why I'm against it. It's because it all stems from a place which does not make sense. Yeah. It doesn't work. As I've said before on the show, evolution, and I've written about on my blog, evolution that makes zero sense. Like the rhino's horn, for instance, is the perfect. You'll be like, how did the rhino get its horn? And the and Richard Dawkins will get up there and be like, well, well, over the years, um, the, the, the rhino was in combat with other rhinos for mates and the one rhino started growing a bump on its nose and that helped it until it became a horn and it could stab other rhinos and this was so massively beneficial that it outcompeted all the other rhinos and had all the offspring and yada yada and that's the same story about everything that ever happens it's the same it's the same line for all of it yeah whatever it is helped you beat other people at having sex that's the that's the explanation for as the er explanation for everything in evolution. Uh, but then I would point out like, well, but how does the horn doesn't help you until it's a horn? If it's just like a misshapen bump on your nose, that's not going to give you a huge combat advantage. A, yep, probably going to be a huge turnoff to potential mates. B, mm-hmm. C, uh, you have to imagine that this. Useless bump on your nose, which isn't useful until for millions of years until it's become a horn, uh, is so massively useful that that as a small little bump that it enables you to outcompete even at the early stages uh, all of the other rhinos which do not have it, so that your genes do not get swamped by all the millions of other rhinos that don't have the bump, right? So it, none of it. This little bump on the rhino's nose does not make a rhino Genghis Khan <laughs> who seeds all of Asia. <laughs> that isn't how that would could possibly work. But this is what they say about everything. 
And it never is true when you stop and think it because because the advantages given to you by an adaptation are not present until the adaptation is complete. Like, yeah, wings are great for flying away from an from an enemy, from a predator. Wings are useless until they're developed enough for you to fly. You'd be much better off having hands or yeah. limbs. <laughs> Light lightweight flappy arms with thin hollow bones are not great for a land animal. <laughs> it's terrible. It's the worst <laughs> device ever. Like you until they're developed enough it takes millions of years by the way to fly. They're just a liability. They don't do it's like I can't fly with them but I can flap wind at you. <laughs> and my bones are brittle. And the the jaguar is like, "Oh no, that's scary." Crunch crunch crunch. <laughs> it doesn't work. Like none of the advanta- none of the advantages of an adaptation are present until the adaptation is complete. However, the whole premise of evolution is that the advantages give you an evolutionary both come mutate on very very slowly, but over many generations, but also give you a competitive advantage the whole time. Evolution is not planning. It's like, you know what? It's not like an investment strategy where the rhino's like this this horn thing looks like it's not giving me investments now, but in a million years, it's going to really pay off. The ROI is going to be huge. <laughs> it's not how it works, right? It has to pay off now in this generation. And so the whole thing is, and the, vi- the whole idea of viruses is that all this mutation, the viruses are evolving and they don't even, they're, they're inanimate objects. They're not even, they don't even, the whole theory of viruses was developed which we still operate on, was developed back when they thought that viruses were little bitty animals like similar to bacteria that ran around. And they looked at them and said, oh, wait, these don't actually do anything. They don't metabolize. They don't eat. They don't use oxygen. They don't use water. They're just little. They don't sit there. If you put them in a petri dish and you look at them, they literally never, ever move in any way. Yeah. It's a pr- protein mousetrap. They're not alive. and But people never went, went through that. And they just made up a bunch of... Anyway, it doesn't work. I mean, the thing about this, the entire scientific establishment right now tries to tell you that that life came about, the one, the universe came about by a giant accident explosion, and two, life came about by probably lightning bolts hitting a muddy pool somewhere. And you trust that guy for your 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 health? <laughs> it's the biggest tell of all that all this is bu- is bullshit. Yeah. None of that is it, that's all a fantasy. <clears throat> made up to the, it's an artifice on which all of these biological decisions rest and it's no good. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Okay. Like why would so, I trust a doctor furthermore? Why would I trust a doctor to give me good medical advice? If that doctor is licensed by a, a health association that recommends letting kids take uh hormone changing drugs and mutilating their genitals. Yeah, or any of the other things they prescribe people which are bad. Yeah. I mean, um they're all, it's it's because they view human beings as biological machines that came about by accident and you they view them as just as you would a car when something's broken you got a hammer on it or whatever. Like it's just they don't have any it's and so this is why I this is why I'm sort of distrustful of them and all everything that they say. Uh, and also because everything they say continues to not work. But whatever. Truth. Um, 
So she says, I spent hours in libraries looking at archive journals of textbooks, uh, getting out dusty volumes from the middle of the 19th century and, and graphs and whatever to make death rates from diseases for which we have vaccines, um, but which for some reason these, these graphs have not been drawn uh, or made available to doctors. Uh, I read what prominent doctors and health officials wrote about vaccination uh, in, the, in the early days. Uh, for example, by the 1950s, when whooping cough uh, vaccine was introduced, uh, data showed that whooping cough at that point was only killing 1% of the numbers of people who used to die in England and Wales 50 years before. So it was already, by the time the vaccine was introduced, which they credit with getting rid of whooping cough, the deaths from whooping cough was already at 1% from what it had been 50 years before. Wow. It was already going way down. Sounds like the story with uh, polio, too. Mm-hmm. Official data likewise showed the same thing happened with measles. Indeed, when the measles vaccine was introduced into the UK in 1968, the death rate continued to drop steadily, even though the initial uptake of the vaccine was only 30% and didn't get above 50 until the 1980s. So you introduce a vaccine to a thing that's already going away, and then you declare victory after it goes away on its own. That's the, that's the whole strategy. Uh, even the much-heralded success of the smallpox vaccine was not what it seemed, right? So... The enforcement, at least in England, of the compulsory smallpox vaccination law in 1867, does this yeah. seem similar? Everything old is new again. People are just on the same scripts going over and over and over and over and over and over and over. So the will of Samsar. Uh, when the death rate was already falling, they did this law, accompanied by an increase in deaths. So after they did the smallpox vaccination law, right, the death rate went from 100 per million to 400 per million. Four times increase. <laughs> Whoops. Four times increase. Right? So, is, is, any of this, uh, is any of this real in the slightest? So, her research led her to being asked in 2002 to act as an expert witness for the mothers of two unvaccinated children in the UK whose absent fathers were applying to the court for a vaccination enforcement order. She says, I wrote a re report based on my research, fully referenced, carefully using the methods and results of the studies I quoted to give my opinion. Um, and the, uh, the fathers had the Joint Committee of Vaccination and Immunization uh, argue on their side. Obviously, they were vaccination. Um, and the judge decided that uh, her opinion was less valid than theirs. And the mothers lost their case. Uh, when it went to the appeal, one of the uh, appeal judges called my evidence, quote, junk science. Hmm. And on this basis, I was charged with serious professional misconduct by the General Medical Council of the UK, uh, which could have resulted in her being stricken off the medical register, banned from paying practice as a doctor and losing her livelihood. Um, but she was eventually, after a three-year thing, uh, fully acquitted. And they said that she did. Uh, her All of her uh, resource was... All of her research was fully sourced, and they had nothing to get her on. Yeah, but it was a big, um, it was a big issue. But so the the idea that things are junk science or pseudoscience. Um, here's the thing: science refers in the modern usage refers to a set of outcomes and not to a process. Yeah, we are led to believe that science is a process, like the scientific method. It isn't anymore. Science is a belief system. Uh, just like democracy. This is why people can say when they vote for Viktor Orban in Hungary, it was a vote against democracy. <laughs> and people Talking say about that. an oxymoron. <laughs> people, but people say that without any yeah. hint of 
irony. Yeah. It was a vote. Democracy may lose the vote. Right? Like, I, I thought democracy was voting. Like, no, 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 no. No, see, democracy in the modern usage, just like science, is a set of outcomes. It's mm-hmm. a set of, it's a, it's a way of life uh, that is broadly termed progressive. And science is a belief system about the way the world works, which is absent God, totally, and which always supports democracy. And things that do not do that are unscientific pseudoscience, regardless of whether you use the scientific method or not. That's how these language games work. It's not a set of processes, right? Which is what it arguably should be. Um, but so she, uh, uh, she wrote, so Dr. Susan Humphreys and her, they wrote this book um, to go through like how these things have happened. Um, and she finishes her introduction with a quote by George Bernard Shaw in his preface to The Doctor's Dilemma in 1906. He says, doctors are just like other Englishmen. Most of them have no honor and no conscience. What they commonly mistake for these is sentimentality and an intense dread of doing anything that everybody else does not do. Or Bam. omitting to do anything that everybody else does. And that's, it's just, that's the same thing. There's no, like, the doctor at, the, at your doctor's office is not thinking independently. He does whatever the CDC says on the thing. and That's it. You come in presenting with something, he'll give you the standard treatment, or pick from a list of approved treatments, and that's all. And his opinion will sit, will change as rapidly as the CDC's website does. Yep, that's he has no thinking of his own, and I that's doctors know that's true because that's what they have to do. Otherwise, they lose their med- medical license. But people convince themselves after being forced to adopt a position that they did it of their own free will, just like uh, after fifty years. People in the South who had been beaten by the North were going and fighting for the Yankees overseas, mm-hmm. waving, waving the Confederate flag and pretending like this is great. Because people will be forced into a situation and then to cope with it, they say, oh, well, this is what we really wanted to do. And that's why this is why it's so it's so d- dangerous to go along with nonsense and lies, because the more that you do, um, the more that you self-deceive yourself into thinking that you did it on purpose. Yeah. And that it was your free choice. So they start the book with going with a chapter called the not so good old days. And it talks about how bad the squalor was in the times of these great, great outbreaks that we look back on in horror. Mm-hmm. Right. So here's a, here's a quote by Henry Matthew from September 24, 1849. I think he's walking through London. As we passed along the reeking banks of the sewer, the sun shone upon a narrow slip of water. In the bright light, it appeared that the color of a, it appeared the color of a strong green tea, and positively looked as solid as black marble in shadow. Indeed, it was more like watery mud than muddy water, and yet we were assured this was the only water the wretched, the wretched inhabitants had to drink. As we gazed in horror at it, we saw drains and sewers emptying their filthy contents into it. We saw a whole tier of doorless privies in the open road, common to men and women, built over it. We heard bucket after bucket of filth splashing into it. Ugh. Ugh. So people have their drinking water 
and the and basically the toilet are the same. This is the number one cause of disease, by the way. Uh, if you do nothing else, don't make your toilet and your drinking water the same place. <laughs> that is the number one way to avoid disease. But surprisingly, this was not done in many parts of the Western world in the 1800s. Just didn't happen for various reasons. Um, in fact, civilization may be defined as the art of living in cities without dying of cholera. Or, or <laughs> I mean, that's probably what civilization is, is living together in large groups without getting diarrhea. That is great. <laughs> right? That's probably what it is. Like, um, you know, like Walt Whitman said, people, like, people, this is disease, like, the Union Army lost two-thirds, uh, it lost two times the men to dysentery, which is bloody diarrhea. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Usually caused by bacteria or parasites. Ugh. Right? That it did to combat. Twice as many. And in the South, uh, diarrhea was so common that it was nicknamed the Tennessee Quick Step. Yeah. And Walt Whitman said, when people were going on later about the, uh, the glories of the battles... You know, he said, uh, well, you know, it seemed to me that the war was one part glory, 999 parts diarrhea. (laughs) What he said. (laughs) And that's true. That's what happened. I mean, it was not, it was not, this was a bad problem, right? Uh, Another quote from the same, from a similar period, this time in Chicago, or I'm sorry, New York, by Frederick Ingalls said, passing along a rough bank among stakes and washing lines, one penetrates into this chaos of small, one-storied, one-room huts, in most of which there is no artificial floor. Kitchen, living, and sleeping room are all in one. Everywhere before the doors, residue and waste. So everywhere before the doors is residue and waste that any sort of pavement lay underneath could not be seen, but only felt here and there with the feet. You can't see, there's nowhere you can see the pavement you can just sort of feel because everybody's just dumping their crap in the road well it's 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 worse than that i mean like um you got to remember this is a time so the people don't have electricity so they're cooking with fire Mm -hmm. imagine new york city where everyone's cooking their meals and heating their homes with fire (laughs) all of that ash and soot yeah everywhere i mean that's There's there's no garbage pickup. You just throw your, the bones of whatever you ate into the yard. And then the carry-on and the bacteria feed on that. You have animals in New York City. Like, people get around by horse and buggy. Mm-hmm. They have dogs. They have chickens. The horses in the slums would die, and no one would remove them. They'd just be a dead horse carcass. Gross. In the, right. People would, would take the dead animals and sometimes just stuff them in the alleyways between the buildings, like the one-foot alleyway. Yeah. Uh-huh. It was bad. And so in the 1800s, people used to dress fancy with like all their frilly collars and hoop, hoop skirts and stuff and powdered wigs because they were literally covered in shit all the time. Oh, no. Otherwise. <laughs> that's, what it, that's what it was. Like, that's really what it was. It, this is why they dressed up. So because, in fact, you know that that theme of the silent movies where you slip on a banana peel. Uh huh. 
That was, I've always wondered about that because you, walking around, you don't really slip on banana peel. Like, there aren't a lot of banana peels. You know, like, what is, what is that about? Yeah. Apparently, that was a gentle euphemism for slipping in, like, manure in the city streets, which apparently happened somewhat often. <laughs> but they didn't want to have manure on the set, and it was right. so gross. Yeah, yeah. So, it was just like, everyone would get it when, like, Buster Keaton would slip on a banana peel or, or Charlie Chaplin. They'd be like, oh, yeah, I remember when I slipped in that horse pie. Yeah. Before I went into work and got covered. Because it's very slick sometimes, right? Right. And so the streets are just covered in manure also. And like they have sweepers that go around, but they can't do it all the time. I mean, it's just, it's dirty. In fact, the car is probably the greatest environmental achievement ever. Interesting. Just for that reason. Because you don't live in a city where everything's pooping. <laughs> Truly, the car. Yeah, imagine is if everybody's everybody's car pooped, like yeah, a couple that's what times it used a day because everyone had a horse, and it was it awful, right? I mean, awful. Yeah. So, you know, like we have this picture in our heads of the 1800s with like this nostalgic, romantic view. Gentlemen callers meeting well-dressed ladies in a finely furnished parlor. You know, paddle wheel riverboats mm-hmm. going up and down. Um, but but that's not... Um, that's not... what. It, as it says in the Bible, do not say, where were the old days? For they were... Why were the old days better than these? You know, it's like... They, and this is this was King Solomon said that like 5,000 years ago. Yeah. So people have been having this... Why were the old days better than these? He says... Solomon said, do not ask why were the old days better than these, for it is not wise to ask such questions. People have been having this feeling forever. But it's always been uh, problems. Uh, so like he's, there's pictures of New York City at the time surrounded by, not suburbs, right, but rings of smoldering garbage dumps and shanty towns. Mm-hmm. Cities where hogs, horses, and dogs, and all of their refuse were just common in the street. It's it's not um, like New York. Not that long ago, New York and London resembled like the slummiest parts of India, or some some shanty in Africa. That's hard to even imagine. I know. Although is, you know, San Francisco's getting back there. They're San going. Francisco's they're going retro. There. Yeah, and it's a re- it's a return to tradition. Yeah. So uh, that's uh, and there's some pictures in this book. Like there's these shanty towns, and they're have a little wooden fence going right up to the, in Syracuse, New York, right up to like the main uh, input from the river that goes into the city and people just are throwing their buckets of trash and their like um, outhouse buckets over the fence into the water. Over and over again. All, and it gets more and more into the city that's becoming more and more of a problem. Uh, because it's, it's just, by the time you get into the middle of downtown New York, you basically have just drinking out of a sewer. Yeah. Uh, so um, the documented history of Western civilization describes an endless and unromantic struggle, struggle with sickness and death, tragically high infant mortality, and the premature death of young adults. In Victorian England, for example, the average age of death among the urban poor was 15 to 16 years old. In Victorian England, that's not that long ago. Wow. Right. Uh, so 
that's probably why Victorian people wrote, wrote all these grand high-flying novels and characters because they lived in squalor otherwise. Yeah. They were just like, let's write something, let's write something good. Like people now live in relatively clean areas, so they write squalor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think there's yeah. a balance. People like a little bit of squalor, they like it to be clean, you know. Um so in 1750, this is how rapidly cities grew, and this was the problem. The cities exploded beyond their capacity of infrastructure. In 1750, 15% of the population of England lived in towns. 15%. By 1880, 80% was urban. So that is a big shift. Yeah. In 1801, one in five workers was employed in manufacturing or a linked occupation. One in five. By 1871, that number had climbed to two in three. The largest city in the Western world had 800,000 inhabitants by 1801. Forty years later, in 1841, its population had grown by a million. Wow. So it's more than... And by the death of Queen Victoria, about 50 years later, it contained seven million inhabitants. So in about 100 years, it went from 800,000 to seven million. Right, And these are all people flooding in from the countryside, coming in for the Industrial Revolution, and they're just, they moved in much faster than the sewer system or any of the infrastructure could keep pace. Uh, and also the housing. I mean, people lived in like these rooms that were not built for housing. They were not made for any of this. Um, they, they got little dank closets the whole families lived in. Um, this... Uh, one article written by uh, Jacob Reese in the Battle of the Slum for New York, 1902. So he said, the stenches from the horribly foul cellars with their infernal system of sewerage must needs poison the tenants all the way up to the fifth story. The well-worn rut of the dead wagon and the ambulance to the gate for the tenants died there like flies in all seasons. And a tenth of its population was always in the hospital. Wow. So there were ruts in the road from the dead wagon. Mm. It's a rough day. And again, people are, there's no ventilation in these things. They have oil lamps, candles. Yeah. There's, you know, um, it's not, it's not good. And this is why disease was so rampant. And also there were rats, cockroaches. I mean, bad. And this is why the 1800s were a place of tremendous pandemics and things that were um, awful and that people suffered from in huge numbers. Like we talked about in the, in the show about vampires in New England and how people thought that tuberculosis was, was basically vampirism and they were dying from it by the thousands and thousands all the time. It's because they just lived in... Uh, in squalor, in abject filth most of their lives. And as people began to get out of abject filth throughout the 1900s into the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, lo and behold, disease started to go away and people were like, our vaccine's awesome. <laughs> and it became sort of a, a tenant of life. Um, here's, 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 a, here's, a, uh, here's a quote from... Uh, Heinrich Hein, a German who was in Paris in 1832, about the cholera epidemic and how people went 
Yeah, cholera is basically a disease that gives you watery diarrhea until you die of dehydration. Yeah. It's, it's not a good way to go. And it is, like most diseases, caused by mixing up the sewage with the drinking water. Um, this is how people. This is how people in Paris responded when when people would get cholera because they were so panicked about it in 1832. <clears throat> Quote: Like beasts, like maniacs, the people fell on them. These are the people that came down with cholera. There is no more dreadful sight than such a popular anger thirsting for blood and throttling its defenseless victims. In the Rue Varigard, where two men were killed, I saw one of these unfortunates, where he was still breathing. Old hags were pulling the wooden shoes from off their feet and beating him on the head with them until he was dead. He was quite naked and bloody and mashed. They had torn off not only his clothes, but his hair, his sex, his nose, and one ruffian tied a rope to the feet of the corpse and dragged it through the streets, shouting constantly, Voila la cholera morbis! Or behold... The cholera dead. Good grief. Right. And that's Paris. Viva la France. You know, uh, it was people, people got a little intense. So again, guys, uh, you know, historical perspectives, things aren't that bad. You know, it's okay. No kidding. <laughs> um, so it was people just lived with constant infectious diseases in the 1800s and late 1700s. I mean, the dense population, and this goes back to even Roman times. People that lived out in the countryside much less likely to get plague mm-hmm. than people that, because it's just these crowded cities is where this. It, it was fine as long as sanitation was okay. When sanitation starts to go away, is when these things start to come back. Um. And so there would be periodic epidemics and pandemics sweeping across these, the globe, wreaking havoc and killing millions, uh, worse than most of the wars, right? Abysmal sanitation, hygiene, nutrition. Also, they didn't have enough food to eat, you know, so they had poor, they had poor vitamins and minerals to fight it off anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and sanitation, it wasn't like sanitation was a new concept. People knew about it. They just... Didn't have the resources. To, they felt like they they had no other choice but to live in the city or they would starve to death because they couldn't get work. And so everyone came there. They didn't have the... I mean, it was just a, it was just a thing. It was just a bad thing. Um, and so uh, people got pushed... But people were pushed into the cities, you know, um, not entirely. People act like people went there because the, the jobs were great. But there were a lot of laws that went into place that sort of pushed people there. Like in England, they had the Enclosures Act, which took up the, the commons land. Like used to in England, in the cities, there were like fields dedicated to where common people could like take their sheep and everyone just shared it as like a grazing pasture or you could garden there or something. Okay, yeah. But then they uh, they outlawed that. Oh, and man. So now people didn't have anything and they had to go. And that's what caused, that's one of the right. big drivers to the massive um, influxes into the cities in the in the... 1800s. Well, even today in America, most cattle ranching, or a lot of it, occurs on uh, publicly owned land. Yeah, exactly. And you and get so that, you get you get like a lease to ranch cattle on on Bureau of Land Management property in in many yeah, cases. Yeah, and that's good. And that I I support that. I think that that's a good uh, thing. We should bring back the commons. Yeah. But so here's some of the diseases that came up in the 1800s: typhoid fever, that's caused by water contaminated with salmonella. 
Uh, it gives you high fever and diarrhea. Everything gives you diarrhea, it basically. That's how these things would go. Um, I mean, people, and that was typhoid fever and, and, and diarrhea was how people died in the Civil War. Cholera, uh, again, is uh, vomiting uh, diarrhea that leads to agonizing death of cramps via dehydration. It killed enormous numbers of children. In, in 18, between 1870 and 1860, 15 million people in India died of cholera. Million. Now it's a it's a it's a bad disease. It yeah. was uh, it was and it was scary enough that people would like rip people apart in the streets if they were suspected of having it. Uh, dysentery, which is again another form of diarrhea, where you were that's what kills you in Oregon Trail, right? Uh, you have died of dysentery, which is bloody diarrhea. It is the the game doesn't say that. It would be interesting if third graders had had that. <laughs> you have died of bloody diarrhea. Yeah, <laughs> be hilarious. If I was a third grader. Typhus fever, uh, it's transmitted by the uh, bite of a louse, mm-hmm. like a body louse. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a filth disease. It's caused by living in filth. It gives you a, a bad fever and shuts your immune system down. You've got diphtheria, an upper respiratory illness, uh, which is caused by, they believe it's caused by, you know how I feel about viruses. They believe by it's caused by a virus that infects a bacteria in you. Nice way of saying, I don't, I don't. Really? Question <laughs> like, oh, it's not, it's the virus, but like, it has to have the bacteria too. Right, yeah. I don't know. Pertussis, uh, which is commonly called whooping cough, mm-hmm. um, and so on and so forth. So, tuberculosis, scarlet fever, uh, measles, yellow fever, which causes you to have like jaundice, uh, consumption, which is tuber- what they used to call it tuberculosis. Um, pure, uh, this is a good one. Uh, I can't pronounce it right. Pure purpural fever. Hang on one second. I got somebody knocking on my door. Just pause. pause. I know. Pause for a second. Pause. How are you today, listener? You having a good one? I hope so. Smokestack is being very unprofessional. He's got people at the door. I hope it's not like an emergency and I'm saying all this and then I'll be look bad. Sorry about all that. Okay, it's fine. We'll just cut that out. Yeah. Let's cut that out. Okay. So anyway, um, where was I? Oh, the fever. This is one of the, uh, the ugliest. It's called uh, purpural fever. Mm-hmm. And this is what was really uh, caused most of the high infant mortality rate that people go on and on about. Uh, about like you know before modern medicine we had this giant which is true, but it was actually caused primarily because doctors would go in to deliver babies without washing their hands. Oh no! So they would go in and they die. This is not uncommon. They would go in and they would dissect the corpse, uh, or just had worked with someone that was dying, mm-hmm. and they would go over to the maternity ward using the same instruments that they'd use to just take apart a corpse. And pull out a baby from a woman, and it caused a lot of death. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, In 1746, from documented records in Paris, more than 50% of mothers who gave birth in a Paris hospital died. 1746. And they thought, well, just women aren't good at having babies. Man. Ah, You know, it's just not, eh, what are you going to do? Curse of Eve. And then someone was like, you know, what if you like washed your hands though after you went from like cadaver dissection? 
Like now. <laughs> now all of most of the medical advances, quote unquote, that prevented infant mortality are almost entirely soap. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost entirely soap. Hygiene and sanitation. Yeah. So, um, and that, that's, it. I mean, it really begs the question of, should the World Organ, uh, Health Organization, which is just trying to inject people, what if they were actually trying to, like, have better sanitation in these places? Yeah. Uh, you know, who knows? Um, so there's this, the next chapter I want to go over is called The Rebel Experiment. And it's about uh, what happened during the the um, uh, in one town in England of uh, Leicester, England. Probably not pronouncing right because English names are all stupid. Um, where they had forced vaccinations in everywhere but this one place, mm-hmm. uh, or at least you know compulsory vaccination. Uh, and there's some quotes there. Doctor Druid in the late uh, Druid in the late 1800s said. You may as well try to stop a smallpox a- epidemic by vaccination as to prevent a thunderstorm with an umbrella. <laughs> um, Dr. Hodge in 1911 said, "What an act of insanity it would be to implant the in- to implant to be implant it would be to implant the ineffective products of undefined disease into the bodies of 8,000 healthy children in order to prevent the possible development of a very few mild cases of smallpox." Does that sound familiar? Yes, it does. It sounds... It's all the same over and over again. Um, so, concerns over vaccine safety, effectiveness, and government infringement on personal liberties stoked a large amount of anti-vaccination movements in the 1800s. Just like the, the everything's on repeat. Um, and there was... Uh, in Lancaster, England, they had what culminated in a public backslash called the Great Demonstration, where they had this giant riot about it. Uh, and so people pulled back. And at the time, um, Lancaster government had pushed for vaccination through the use of fines and jail time. And it was replaced by a new government, which opposed cold and pulsary vaccination. By 1887, the vaccination coverage rates had dropped to just 10%. So the previously they'd been at near near you know, in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And then it had dropped to 10%. Um, so they developed a different method. The The Leicester method relied on... So here's what they did instead. They would quarantine smallpox patients and disinfect the house. And that was their what they believed that they would do. That would be a cheap and effective means to eliminate the need for vaccination. Um... But did it work? So, well, well, did it work? Uh, yes. It, it, here's, a, here's a quote from an article uh, at the time. The last decade has witnessed an extraordinary decrease in vaccination, but nevertheless, the town has enjoyed almost entirety immunity from smallpox. There never having been more than two or three cases in the town at a time. A new method for which great practical utility is claimed has been enforced by the Sanitary Committee of the corporation for stamping out of smallpox is one of the least troublesome diseases for which they now have to deal. The method of treatment in a word is this. As soon as smallpox breaks out, the medical man and the householder are compelled under penalty to at once report the outbreak to the corporation. The smallpox van is then ordered by telephone to make all arrangements. And thus within a few hours, the sufferer is safely in the hospital. The family and inmates of the house are placed in quarantine and comfortable quarters. And the house is thoroughly disinfected. 
The result is that in every instance, the disease has been promptly and completely stamped out at paltry expense. Under such a system, the corporation have expressed their opinion that vaccination is unnecessary as they claim to deal with the disease in a more direct and much more efficacious manner. This and the widespread belief that death and disease have resulted from the operation of vaccination may be said to be the foundation upon which the existing operation of the X rests. Woo. So they had great success. Yeah. They had great success. Um, however, however, people at the time, the experts at the time, thought, well, it looks like that way now. But let me tell you something. This is a, this is a gigantic experiment. And it's going to result in, quote, a massacre, particularly for the, quote, again, this is a quote, particularly for the unprotected, unvaccinated children. (laughs) Man. Any day now. Whoa. Any day now. The unvaxxed are going to be dropping like flies. Again, this is in 1887. Everything is the same. It's always the same. Oh, man. This is why Solomon also said... There's nothing new under the sun. Everything's just on repeat. And once you get that, chill out a lot because it's like, oh, right. You know, what did they do? Um, Sir Dominique Corrigan, MD, um, when acting as one of the committees uh, on the committee in 1871 on the Vaccination Act said, quote, an unvaccinated child is like a bag of gunpowder, which could blow up the whole school. And ought not, <laughs> therefore, to be admitted to school unless he is vaccinated. <laughs> it's the same argument over and over again forever. It's the same thing. This has been going back to the days of Noah. An unvaccinated child is like a bag of gunpowder. Could you, I could, you could picture every the every one of those losers that get on CNN and hyperventilate about, about, we got to protect the kids and grandma saying that. I mean, that is straight out of the headlines. Look, the hospitals are going to be overrun. Oh, what, what are you? Ugh, we have to mask the kids because the hospitals be, are, you know, another quote um, from from a different guy. Let them remove the cordon of protection persons about the cases and they're. Uh, let them remove the cordon of protected persons about the cases. So that means. Oh, they just haven't... Enough people are vaccinated that it's not a problem. But if those people went away, that that town is finished. It's really still the vaccination, right? All their boasted arguments when we remove the vaccinated population will prove a delusion. The sick will be without nurses. The very industry of health in the city will be molested by a plague which will stagger the authorities of the borough and bring thousands of the unvaccinated inhabitants to cry for the blessings discovered by Jenner, the person that invented the vaccination. So the hospitals are going to be overrun (laughs) any day. (laughs) It's going to be a plague, which will stagger the authorities. Unreal. The hospitals will be overrun. Right. Uh, Another, another medical doctor at the time said the anti-vaxxers of Lancaster having to a great extent thrown off the armor of vaccination are waging a desperate, gallant, though misguided conflict against the enemy. But in Lancaster, when the time arrives, we shall not fail to see a repetition of last century's experiences. And certainly there will afterwards be fewer children left to die from diarrhea. It is hoped that when the catastrophe does come, government will see that its teachings are duly studied, recorded. And of course it never happened. Mm Mm-hmm. But just fear over and over again. Um, you know, it's 
who knows? Um, Lancaster enjoyed better success against smallpox than other towns in England, which were highly vaccinated. In 1993, smallpox outbreak, the well-vaccinated district of Mould in Flintshire, England, had a death rate of about 32 times higher. <laughs> Man! 32 times higher. So, uh, these are, these are, these are problems. Um, these are problems. And, uh, Dr. Millard noted, um, he was a guy that was started to question after he saw the Lancaster thing. He said, maybe this is not, maybe this is the way to go. And he said, you know, vaccination, uh, he said, is not harmless. You know, it has some side effects. And he made an extremely important observation. He said, um, well, look. This is, again, in 1887. We know vaccination doesn't prevent transmission, but it may reduce the severity of smallpox. <laughs> Literally says this. Oh, man. <laughs> and he went on to say, but I still don't know if that is justifies it because it because it doesn't stop the spread of the disease and both severe and mild forms are still contagious. Unreal, man. Wow. Yeah. And again, importantly, all of this on both sides is is probably nonsense because viruses are inanimate objects which cannot move. They're not. This is all. This is all probably for nothing. Um. So let's talk about the disappearance of polio, because the polio vaccine is one they really hit you with. Oh yeah. Um. Uh, Dr. Uh, Kalakoros in Australia, he said that uh, he was told, uh, he wrote this in his book. I also looked at their children and wondered why they got so sick. This time the answer came rather quickly from the mouth of an Aboriginal woman. Quote, before the white man came, we had good health and no sickness. I believe that's probably true, personally. Uh, nomadic peoples are notoriously healthy and fit. Mm -hmm. uh, you can see this even in the skeletal remains of agrarian, uh, agrarian people versus... Agricultural people, mm -hmm. something like the Bronze Age. Skeletons of the nomadic people look much more hardy. Um, now, here's a quote from Jonas Salk, the inventor of the polio vaccine. This is what he wrote in 1977. Live virus vaccines against paralytic poliomyelitis, for example, may in each instance produce the disease it is intended to prevent. The live virus vaccines against measles and mumps may produce such side effects as encephalitis. Both of these problems are due to the inherent difficulty of controlling the live virus in vivo once they are placed in a live person. So the guy says, look, polio vaccine may give you polio. Yeah. I don't know. But, you know, it's probably worth it. His idea was it's probably worth it on the whole. Um, so the polio story is a long, complicated one, uh, which, is, which is one most of the medical profession is not willing to tell and which is largely smoke and mirrors of sketchy statistics, uh, renaming diseases, and vaccine-induced Paralytic polio caused by both the Salk and Sabin vaccines. Mm -hmm. Sabin had an oral vaccine. Salk had his injection. Um, despite many well-documented historical problems, polio and smallpox vaccines serves as the anchor for the vaccination faith today. It stirs immense passion in those who believe their ancestors were affected by the dreaded virus or their children could be crippled by it today. Right. And this is true. Like people will be like, I did the, look at my arm. I had the polio vaccine and I'm better. That's why we didn't, you know, and I'll point to like, well, my arm. And I mean, I don't know. I don't have that big scar. Yeah, me neither. I don't know. So anyway, um, 
Many people believe the disease called polio has been eradicated in the Western Hemisphere. Most everyone thinks that polio was eliminated by vaccination. Uh, but to understand where polio went, we must understand what polio was. It then becomes clear that it was not possible to eradicate with a vaccine um, in any way. So first of all, the term poliomyelitis is a description of spinal pathology. Right. That's all it is. It's a word that comes from the Greek polos, meaning gray, uh, mylos, meaning marrow, and itis, inflammation. And it denotes the inflammation of the gray matter of the spinal cord. It can occur in the brainstem or the, or the spinal cord. And basically all it is is some part of your central nervous system along your spine gets inflamed and causes it swells up and it doesn't work properly and it causes a form of paralysis. Right? Mm-hmm. In some area of the body. Maybe total. If it's up in the brainstem, maybe completely below the neck. If it's like down lower, maybe like on the legs or something. Or just partial paralysis where like you need crutches to walk with. Uh, uh, and so, you know, there's all these horrible pictures from the 50s and 40s of like kids with like leg braces and stuff. Uh, now, importantly, most of those conditions went away after a few weeks. Most people don't know that. Uh, the majority, the great majority of polio paralytic victims uh, recovered without intervention within a few weeks because the inflammation would go down and they would be. Uh, a small number of polio victims were placed in what is locked in our collective memory, the iron lung machine. Yeah. The most terrifying because they presented the most serious form of polio um, called bulbar poliomyelitis, where the brain stem is involved and the death rate is the highest. Uh, it was widely believed to be caused by a virus that infects the intestinal tract and moves into the body. From 1912 to 1969, so the early 1900s, um, we've been, so we've been told that polio was a highly prevalent and contagious disease, right? Uh, it's been portrayed as a vicious crippler uh, in the early mid-1900s, and it was habitually diagnosed by doctors who used a very loose definition of what polio was. So, um, however, if you look at a graph of diseases from the time, the actual deaths from polio from like 1912 to 1969 mm -hmm. barely register. Really? Compared to measles, smallpox, typhoid, diphtheria, uh, syphilis, malaria. Those are all so much higher. It's insane. But, you know, we're sort of have this idea of it in our heads of like this giant killer. But given the low in incidence of the disease, like very, like really not many people got it. How did it become perceived as this fearsome monster? Um, especially in light of the fact that its rate was far less than other causes, both its rate of incidence and its rate of death. Like most people did not get polio. It was pretty rare. And when you did, it was usually survivable. Not like all the diarrhea things, which were killing people left and right. Um, and so how did it come to be viewed as this? And how did this how did this vaccine come to be lauded as like the cure of this whole holy you know, this horrible illness? Well, it's easy to assume that the polio virus just appeared out of nowhere or somehow changed. There's a new variant in the nineteen hundreds because it became as problematic as it was alleged to be. But naturally existing polio virus is a common uh, bowel inhabitant of people for millennia. Mm -hmm. It's always been there. It's continuously circulating in humans, um, but it never caused paralysis until something changed. Question is, what what happened? Indeed. 
what what happened. Um, there was a brief period of time um, where in the 1700s in America, or I'm sorry, in Brazil, where the natives lived among the white men until they realized that doing so brought waves of death and disease upon them. The Indians did not used to just retreat into the jungle. They came out for a while. Uh, but they, when they did, they found that they would begin to, to experience these horrible diseases. Uh, because living in cities and in large clusters is unhealthy, unless you have really good sanitation, which they did not uh, at the time. But in 1964, after the Indians went back into the rainforest, um, isolated tribes were examined for their health by various doctors. And one doctor uh, named Dr. Neal found that despite most all of the men having samples of blood that show, and feces that showed they were clearly infected with polio viruses, mm-hmm. none of them had the disease. Yeah. None of them had the disease. He said, quote, The paradox of the virtual absence of paralytic poliomyelitis among such heavily infected groups uh, is well known. But the interpretation of the observation remains under discussion. So this isolated people who not adopted any of the lifestyle choices had the polio virus in their system. Always there. Anytime you did a test, they picked it up. But they were completely immune to any symptoms of it. How does that? How does that happen? Good. What can account? Yeah. What can what what can account for these? And why does the disease not um, spread? Where Doctor Albert Sabin, inventor of the oral oral polio vaccine, also noted in 1947 that native peoples were infected by polio virus before the age of five, and yet there was no paralysis among them. And they never thought, well, maybe we should re-examine our assumptions about what's causing it. That never occurred to them. No. Um, there was, however, a significant rate of paralytic poliomyelitis in American servicemen in the same area. Uh, it was common among colonizing communities, but not among the natives. Dr. Sabine, again, the inventor of the oral vaccine, said, The most important question is, why did paralytic poliomyelitis become an epidemic disease only a little more than 50 years ago? And as such, why does it seem to be affecting more and more the countries in which sanitation and hygiene, along with the general standard of living, are presumably making the greatest advances, while other large parts of the world, regardless of latitude, are still relatively unaffected? So why is it only happening in the developing world? Why is it not happening in the undeveloped, quote-unquote, uh, even Dr. Sabin saw that it was present everywhere, but the virus itself wasn't doing anything. It needed something else. Something else was happening that caused it to create this uh, inflammation. A lot of people think that it may have been the use of DDT and other pesticides, or that it was something in our diet, or whatever that triggered whatever happened for polio to turn into this thing. Uh, before the vaccine, but here's where here's the here's the trick. Before the vaccine was in play. Um, many distinct diseases were naively grouped under the umbrella term of polio. Mm. Only after the vaccine was widely accepted was there an effort to distinguish poliovirus from other types of paralytic diseases. Oh, does this sound? Man. Does this sound? Sounds a little familiar. Right. It's like <laughs> where did AIDS go? Yeah. It's because AIDS was just a catch-all for anything that made gay people sick. Yeah. Yeah. That's really what it was in the eighties. It was just like yeah, you know. Um, so, here's a list of things that, that were probably categorized as polio prior to 1958. Um, 
Undiagnosed congenital syphilis. Mm-hmm. Arsenic and DDT toxicity. Mm-hmm. Transverse myelitis. Guillain Barr syndrome. Provocative uh, provocation of limb paralysis by intramuscular injections of many types. Hand, foot, and mouth disease. <laughs> lead poisoning. And many others. The, the lead poisoning is a big component there because uh, lead-based pesticides were heavily in use at the time that polio was supposedly raging. Yeah. And in places of the world where they still get polio, you still find them using this older stuff. Yeah. The face of polio may have changed, but it was mostly due to the power of the pen, advances in diagnostic and life support technology, and removal of certain toxins. So, a specific polio diagnosis was not pursued with laboratory testing before 1958. It's important. Before the vaccine, there was no test for it at all. Then, the diagnostic criteria for polio, which were very loose, were narrowed to something hyper-specific. Yeah. And what do you know? Less cases. Does the loose and sloppy definition of a disease sound familiar? (laughs) Does that sound like something that's happened? Oh, could be. Could be. And that's the thing. This precision is precision mirage. Mm -hmm. The technical precision. Like people, what you actually have when you get down to it, when you go to the doctor, is a set of symptoms. Symptoms which might be caused by anything. Like, they really don't know in almost all cases what's act. Like, they have a, this is why misdiagnosis is so common. They're like, oh, you have this, and you'd be there for months, and they're like, oh, wait, no, this is other thing, or whatever. Because you have a set of symptoms, and they give you, um, like my friend married to the woman with fibromyalgia. Mm-hmm. She just doesn't want to get out of bed in the morning. Yeah. It's not, you know, like, if she's going to do something fun, yeah. she'd be like, oh, I'm having a great day today. Right. <laughs> But if it's like, you got to go to work, she's like, ugh, fibromyalgia. It's my symptoms are really flary. Mm, mm-hmm. You know? Um, so before vaccination campaign was deployed, the healthcare professionals were vigilantly programmed to be on the lookout for polio. After the trials, they were vigilantly noting who developed polio, vaccinated or unvaccinated, and made every effort to diagnose non-polio illness in a vaccinated person. Yeah. Does this sound, this is what I mean about epistemology and naming. These things are just categories. Yeah. These things are just categories that people drop stuff in. Two. Here is a, here is a uh, quote from 1960 by Dr. Bernard Greenberg, head of the Department of Biostatistics and the University of North Carolina and public health and chairman of the Committee of Evaluation and Standards of the American Public Health Association. So not he's he's the chairman of the American Public Health Association, people. He said, quote, prior to 1954, any physician who reported paralytic poliomyelitis was doing his patient a service by way of subsidizing the cost of hospitalization and was being community minded in reporting a communicable disease. Hmm. Huh. He was doing his patient a service by subsidizing the cost of hospitalization and was being community-minded and reporting a communicable disease. The criterion of diagnosis at the time in most health departments followed the World Health Organization's definition. Spinal paralytic poliomyelitis, signs and symptoms of non-paralytic... Oh, this is how you do it. So spinal paralytic poliomyelitis is defined by, quote, signs and symptoms of non-paralytic poliomyelitis with the addition of partial or complete paralysis of one or more muscle groups detected on two examinations at least 24 hours apart. That's how the definition was prior to 1945. Mm-hmm. 
Note that, he goes on to say, note that two examinations at least 24 hours apart was all that was required. Laboratory confirmation and presence of a residual uh, of residual paralysis longer than 24 hours was not required. So that was before 1954. That's how you defined if you had polio, right? In 1955, the SALK vaccine was released and the diagnostic criteria became much more stringent. There, if there was no residual paralysis, 60 days oh, now. after the onset, <laughs> the disease was not considered to be polio. Whoa, man. So you used to have polio if you had paralysis that lasted 24 hours. Yeah. But now, if whatever you had goes away within 60 days, that wasn't polio. That'll knock your case count down. This made a huge difference in the documented prevalence of paralytic polio. (laughs) Huge difference. What a scam. And that's the thing. The doctors are not trying to scam you. They're just following the science. They're following the, and it's people, as they learn about, they define thing, they go from a loose definition of a thing to the more they worry about it, they name it more and more and more, and they drill it down to the point where it becomes something else. And so it's not like, it's not like there's this, in some, I mean, there are conspiracies that happen, but in some sense, it is a unacknowledgement of our own ability to shape reality through words. And just our, our, the, the refinement of the definitions are going to necessarily reduce the case count in every case. So, yeah, like, the like better Dr. we get at precisely office. diagnosing it, cases will go down. And, and that's never, I guess it's never acknowledged as case counts go down that a lot of that is because we are refining our, def, our definition and diagnostic capabilities. Yeah, people just, they don't notice that's what happened. Yeah. Like, the, Dr. Greenberg went on to say, the change in 1955 meant that we were reporting a new disease, namely paralytic poliomyelitis, with longer-lasting paralysis. Furthermore, diagnosed procedures have continued to be refined. Coxsackie virus and aseptic meningitis have been distinguished from paralytic poliomyelitis. So, prior to night there, there was no meningitis. It was just polio. Now it's been like, oh, well, that didn't last 60 hours. It's a different thing. 60 days. That's a different thing. They looked in and it's like, oh, this is because of this other thing called meningitis. Yeah. It's not polio. But used to, if you had meningitis, it was polio. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's the same. It's just naming. It's naming. It's, it's, and it's like, it's like with, it's like with physicists, right? Uh, physicists are always going on about how they're finding new particles. They aren't. They don't realize it, but they aren't. You're, they're just cutting up the world in different ways through naming things. Like, I can invent a new part. I can invent a new piece of the house right now. I'm looking around. Uh, oh, that over there is the Miksaki. What's the Miksaki? It's the area of the wall about three foot down, uh, two feet to the right of the window that has uh, that looks like it might be good for hanging a picture. That's a Miksaki. Now, I just cut that up from my arbitrary definitions of what I wanted to accomplish and made a new piece of it that I can refer to in literature. I can say, well, this McSackie isn't very good. And that's all that's happening in particle physics. Yeah. Is that people are looking at things in a different way with different criteria and they're renaming it. And the more you, the more refined your tools are for examining things, the more little pieces of it you will notice. And the more names you will come up with. But you're not. 
it's not more valid or less valid or more insightful. It's just naming. And that's why the, the greater your microscope becomes, you will always, the world will seem infinitely many small particles because you can cut it up as small as you want. You can divide the quark and the quoson or whatever you want to do down to the smallest degree, but there's actually really only one everything. Right? It's just, it's just, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a hard thing for people to get their head around because we're trained in this, like, we believe that we're speaking words to describe objective reality. And in some sense we are, mm-hmm. but also in another sense, we are creating objective reality through our words. Well, it make it kind of makes me think of a, a metaphor here. So imagine, imagine you're Mario. Okay. Hmm? From the video game, you're in, you're in Mario 64. Uh, out in the out in the world outside the castle, you know, and there's the bridge and the warp pipes and the bushes, and there's turtles mm-hmm, running mm-hmm. around and stuff. And but there's no everything is gray polygons. There's no texture on anything. Everything still works the same. Um, uh, but there's no textures on anything. Now, if if a game designer were to come in and slap one set of textures on there, the world looks one way, and you would categorize things differently. And if you slap yes. a different set of textures on there. It'd be entirely different. You know, there's little little enemies in there. They're basically the same polygon structure, but they've got different textures on them. And so mm-hmm. we, they're they're considered different things. Uh, but if you were to just change the textures out, and so and so like the language that you speak of is the textures, and the reality is the gray polygons. Like the gray polygons are there. They do certain things. Their behaviors don't change, but however we texturize them is is a lot more relevant to how we perceive reality than we give it credit for. Well, that's true, but also I would say it goes deeper, and you actually affect the polygons. Oh, okay. In some, in some way, like, like the the cosmos is is basically language, and that's why you that's why if you're operating on a high enough frequency, you can speak things into existence. You can say to this mountain, "Go throw in the ocean," and it'll happen, because um, it it really like I think that there was a novel not long ago uh, called um, King Killer Chronicles by. Patrick Rothfuss, mm-hmm. and it really clued into this principle because the whole thing of there is there was like magic, but there was like low level magic, and then there was like naming, and naming was like intense magic. And this is true, like this is, uh, it was called the name of the the name of the wind was the first book, and it's like if you knew the real name of the wind, if you knew the wind's actual name, you could command it. And there's there's something very real in that. This is why like. This is why God's name is fundamentally unknowable. He just says, I am. Because you can't control God. And that's also why the angels are very reluctant to share their names, right? Like, classic example is in cases of the demonic possession, if you can figure out the demon's name, it's game over. They have to leave. They never reveal their name except under force because you names give you power over, over things. Interesting. Yeah, names are like... This is why also like when like in the, in Revelation when you finally learn if you if you if you get to heaven you're given a new name which you really are. Mhm. And you learn this is why like when people become on a spiritual path they get a new name like because they change into something else. And so naming is actually uh this is what I'm trying to get people to see is that when I say things are um it, it, when I say like the disease is largely psychosomatic 
what I'm really saying is like you're defining reality through your words and you are causing this to some degree by your you're making it happen like it didn't this didn't happen in Africa because they didn't play the word game about it and that's very interesting just think about that for a long time how this worldwide disease largely spared Africa despite not having health infrastructure and all this stuff what ha- and why people like me who were like meh meh are fine mm-hmm. and people that really freaked out about it often died yeah it's because like and it's because like th- just and this is what black magicians use things to an extent to an extent are how you say they are this is how like the whole the secret thing works and the the manifesting like there's truth in that and you can get better at it or worse at it and 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 black magicians try to manipulate people through the language and this is what a large part of politics is is what i've talked about many times on the show um but things can just go away if you just reclassify them like polio it can just vanish just from a naming perspective and it's it's so just be careful what you say because it really is I think on some level, if you actually did know the name of the wind, you could control the wind. I think that that's possible. Like I revealed, like I talked about once on the show or on the blog, I don't forget. One time I seemed to, I seemed to have talked to the ocean and it listened. That was weird. Yeah. So I I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, But we've been going for a while and it was a good show. It was fun. Um, And our, you know, I, I I think the only thing that could really help us at this point um, is if people donate more money, <laughs> that's gonna help a lot. I think I'm gonna try this right now. Okay, so reality is all of our all of our listeners are buying us coffees on Buy Me a Coffee, which will be linked in the show notes. All right, we'll see if it happens. All of our listeners. Are, oh, and you know what else? Uh, everyone sign. Everyone on Tuesdays, this show airs on ACR on the live stream. Uh huh. And you can get on there, and I usually get on the Discord channel and you can live chat with us or with me if you'd like to on tuesdays at 8 p.m yeah jump on the the acr discord alternate current jump radio on the acr com. discard uh, alternate current radio discord and it'll be uh good times you can talk to sumo while you listen to the show is that how it works you can talk to me while you listen to the show that doesn't mean i'll respond to you if you're asking stupid things yeah uh like if you're like i i i tried to say that i could fly and i jumped off the building and couldn't fly <laughs> you know and I'm like, I'm sorry, like you weren't good enough at it yet. I won't say that it won't work because I think it probably would, but you got to be good at it. Okay. I think really you could. I think really if you knew how to speak properly, you could basically do anything. Which is why, because the universe is made of logos, is made of. But you know, different thing. <sighs> anyway. Yeah. Polio. Make polio great again.
stuff here. We just had something go right over the top of us that, I hate to say this looked like a long cylindrical object. It almost looked like a cruise missile type of thing moving really fast and right over the top of us.